Welcome to Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I'm your host, Dr. Rick Green, and in this series, we will talk to the editors and experts featured in Selected Readings in General Surgery, a publication that highlights highly relevant and practice-changing information from the world's most prominent medical journals. As busy professionals, we don't always have time to read the most current studies. The goal of this podcast is to bring that information to you, providing key takeaways, insights, and perspectives from leading authorities in all surgical specialties and multidisciplinary areas that affect the surgical patient. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. In a previous edition of our Surgical Readings podcast, we covered the epidemiology, etiology, and management of abdominal aneurysmal disease. On today's edition, we focus on occlusive disease of the peripheral arterial system, including the carotid and peripheral vascular circulation. Our discussant is Dr. Britt Tonneson. She's an associate professor of surgery at the Yale University Department of Surgery and an associate editor of Selected Readings in General Surgery. Britt, welcome to Surgical Readings. Thank you very much, Rick. I'm happy to be here, and hi, everyone listening. Well, we have a lot of information to cover today, and uh, our mission today is to talk about carotid and peripheral vascular disease, and I want to salute you for being associate editor for Selected Readings in General Surgery, and uh, you do a marvelous job. I was wondering, let's start with uh, our discussion of carotid arterial disease, and I I would wish you to give us a little epidemiology and uh, maybe talk a little about uh, the differences between symptomatic and asymptomatic carotid arterial disease. Sure. Uh, so as far as carotid artery disease goes, I think there's uh, really a global burden of disease. And in fact, Carotid disease accounts for at least 20% of ischemic strokes, with the remainder being small vessel disease or cardioembolic and uh, less frequently hemorrhagic strokes. And so when we're thinking about carotid artery disease, we want to think about how we can detect it. And then if we only detect it after it's become symptomatic, how do we, how do we manage that? So really carotid artery disease is divided into asymptomatic disease, which does still put a patient at risk for stroke, and then symptomatic disease. So I'd like to hone in a little bit more on what constitutes symptomatic disease. Okay. So basically a symptomatic carotid is one that leads to a TIA or a stroke, TIA being the transient ischemic attack or a temporary neurological deficit. And I will say that I think uh, many vascular surgeons are referred patients uh, sometimes for some vague uh, neurological symptoms such as dizziness and wobbly uh, spells. But in reality, what we're really looking for are some real focal neurologic symptoms such as unilateral arm or leg weakness, aphasia affecting the speech center of the brain, or what we call a amaurosis fugax, which is transient monocular blindness in the ipsilateral side with the carotid stenosis. So we're really looking for that story 
And I, I've heard it time and time again, a patient may say, uh, you know, I was holding my coffee cup and my hand just got clumsy and I dropped it. Or I once had a bus driver whose uh, leg, he couldn't move it. It got stuck actually on the, on the gas. And fortunately it was just a minor fender bender. So we're really looking for those unilateral uh, weakness uh, signs. Uh, and then the, the amaurosis fugax, the way that that will present is with a shade coming down over the eye and it may last only a few seconds. And that can be a, a warning sign as well of a symptomatic carotid. That's excellent, what a great lead in. Uh, before we start talking about management, because there's a lot of interesting and newer things involved that I wanna ask you about, Let's talk a little about the screening for carotid disease and especially about the use of uh, duplex ultrasound and maybe some other techniques that you can tell us about. Great, I'd be happy to do so. So I think an ultrasound is the initial test we will order for someone who we might suspect has carotid artery disease. Uh, it's, not, it's not necessarily advisable to screen every patient for carotid disease. That's not really been shown to be affected and effective rather, and is not in our uh, guidelines, but in higher risk groups, such as patients who are undergoing coronary artery bypass surgery or patients who have concomitant lower extremity vascular disease, they represent a group of patients who may have a higher incidence, for example, of carotid artery disease. Uh, certainly anybody who has uh, symptoms also ought to be uh, examined. So we'll start off with a duplex, and that gives us a general idea of the degree of carotid stenosis. Duplexes are um, really validated through the velocity of the blood flow that goes uh, through the uh, carotid artery, and there are very uh, specific categories for the degree of stenosis based upon the velocity of that blood flow. Excellent. So we've now screened the patient. We've take it a good history. We know something about their disease, whether it's symptomatic, non-symptomatic. So let's talk a little about the surgical management. Of course, the tradition has been carotid endarterectomy, but there's some new things. I know there's a transcarotid artery revascularization or TCAR. So let's start off with our traditional approaches of endarterectomy. Tell us about that. So a carotid endarterectomy is still a frequently used and really the gold standard treatment for carotid artery disease, whether that is a critical asymptomatic stenosis or a moderate to high grade severe um, uh, symptomatic stenosis. And you know this operation uh, has been studied for, for many decades and it, it really has borne the test of time, if you will. There are a little different uh, nuances in how people tend to do it, whether that's using uh, local anesthetic block or general anesthesia, and those are probably equivalent in outcomes, or uh, whether you routinely shunt the artery or use some sort of other uh, monitoring, such as EEG monitoring. Um, and then, you know, we, we have different techniques, two different techniques. There's an eversion uh, endarterectomy versus a conventional endarterectomy in which a longitudinal incision is made on the artery and the, and the um, artery is patched at the completion of the procedure. And these have been compared over time. And what we found is that all of these things work <laughs> and they're all pretty, pretty good outcomes as long as you're consistent in the way that you do it. 
Well, tell us a little about um, the potential downsides. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking in terms of uh, after revascularization, are, are we seeing a significant reduction in post-procedural strokes? Uh, is that something that we need to worry about? And how do we reduce uh, the, the complications of the operation? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, what we know is that uh, you know carotid endarterectomy has a small but real risk of perioperative stroke. It, in generally uh, speaking, in experienced hands, it should be less than a couple percent. Okay, and then there are cranial nerves that are adjacent to the carotid artery, the vagus nerve, the uh, hypoglossal nerve, and so there is a small risk of cranial nerve injury too, up to about. 5% or so marginal mandibular nerve. So we always uh, talk to the patient and in layman's terms, we talk about you know hoarseness or uh, difficulty swallowing or a little droopiness of the side of the mouth from uh, marginal mandibular uh, nerve injury. So that's a consideration as well. And then there is a, a small risk of uh, acute coronary problems or perioperative uh, MI uh, with carotid endarterectomy. And, and that seems to be a bit higher um, with carotid endarterectomy versus, say, transfemoral stenting when we compare those. So let's think about the patient who has symptomatic disease. Um, how do we approach it? And I'm, I, I want to ask your opinion uh, for the patient who either has a TIA or a mild stroke. What's the potential time frame we should think about uh, either uh, operating while the symptoms are going on or, or allowing the patient to clear their symptoms? Yeah, um, that's a that's a great question, and that just came up today, and it comes up pretty frequently in practice, I would say. And what we found that has uh, become important to to know is that revascularization should not be too soon, so not right after a TIA or right after a stroke, but also don't want to wait too late. Uh, and the really the pathophysiology of this is that the plaque is an active plaque, right? So it may have a acute ulceration with some. Uh, intraplaque hemorrhage or some, you know, little thrombi kind of sitting on the surface that caused those symptoms. And so that's a, that's a dangerous plaque. So you want to remove that before there's a risk of recurrent TIA or stroke. Generally speaking, about two to two days to uh, two weeks is kind of the window that we look at. Um, the exception to that would be someone who has unfortunate dense hemiparesis, uh, and in that patient, the um, risk of surgery is, is much higher. There's, um, you know, there's not going to be a great deal of benefit for revascularization for uh, someone with a, a very dense, uh, dense stroke. Uh, but in patients with a stable neurologic uh, deficit, uh, we try to do that revascularization, that carotid endarterectomy or the uh, TCAR, which I guess we'll talk about briefly uh, within that, uh, generally within that inpatient window. Excellent. So now we've uh, we've used our duplex, and let's say we've screened a patient. Uh, they tend to be what we think is asymptomatic. Um, what are our What are your thoughts about uh, management of that patient? Uh, and and certainly, if you could discuss, there's, there's famous trials have been done, the ACAS trial and others in asymptomatic patients. What 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 should we do for the asymptomatic individual? Yes, so uh, that comes up more often than uh, symptomatic disease, just given the amount of disease. And you'll see this in your in your office. You might see it in the uh, inpatient setting, in the emergency room, or whatnot. But patients with asymptomatic disease, if it's moderate, up to 
up to about, you know, 70% or so that's managed medically with antiplatelet and statin therapy and risk factor modification. Smoking cessation, of course, is, is critical. In patients with a greater than 70, 80% uh, plus stenosis, the um, trials such as the uh, well-known uh, ACAS trial, um, you know, has demonstrated that there is absolute um, about 11% or so absolute risk of ipsilateral stroke over five years. So if you think about that, though, that's not really a tremendous uh, risk reduction. I think there's a common um, misconception, perhaps, that a patient comes to the office and they have 80% carotid and they, and they think they have about 100% risk of stroke. And, and we know that's not true. The risk of absolute stroke over a five-year period you know, is just a couple of percent a year over that, you know, each over each year of that five-year period that, um, that that patient has followed. So obviously there's some variability in that, but in reality, the risk of stroke, even from a high-grade stenosis is relatively low. And so then we have to consider, you know, what is this patient's risk of surgery? Are they a reasonable candidate for surgery or do they have a very limited uh, life expectancy, in which case they may just be more, um, may benefit more from medical management of their asymptomatic disease. So Britt, I want to ask you, you know, uh, all good surgeons should track their own data. Uh, I know the American College of Surgeons, of course, has been a leader in, the, uh, in their surgeon-specific registry. Talk a little about data collection, <laughs> your uh, experience with your own data collection. What do we learn from these things? Well, I think, I think it's really important for each surgeon to track their own data and to really know what they can tell their patients. Patients would like to know, you know, what is, what is your stroke rate? And you can say, okay, it's less than 1% or, you know, it's, it's uh, less than 2%. And I think, you know, that can be valuable information. And it also gives you all these uh, opportunities for improvement. So using the ACS uh, surgeon specific registry is one really nice way to do that. Um, in vascular, we also have a, a vascular quality initiative, which is a, a nationwide uh, a database that um, we can examine our uh, outcomes and kind of compare to our, our peers as well. Um, so I think, you know, da data is really, uh, really important in this day and age and not just for our own individual uh, knowledge, but really, uh, you know, sometimes hospitals may uh, need that information as you as you uh, move forward in your practice. That's a great message. Uh, before we transition to our discussion of peripheral arterial disease, are there any final thoughts that you wanna leave our listeners with regarding carotid artery management? Yes, uh, thank you. I mean, I think carotid artery disease is, is something that we encounter very regularly. It's very prevalent. I think as a bottom bottom foundation, we need to really look at, at the patient's medical management. Are they smoking? Is their diabetes controlled? Are they on an antiplatelet? Are they on a statin? We know from our uh, surgical registries that patients tend to be un, under-prescribed these very basic medications for atherosclerotic uh, vascular disease. So let's talk a little about peripheral arterial disease. Um, and I know this makes up a significant part of your practice as well. Um, the use of medical management, let's say a patient is mildly uh, symptomatic, they have some mild claudication, um, 
You don't think they have threatened limb ischemia. What's the role of medical management in these patients? So for lower extremity peripheral arterial disease, um, these folks uh, are in different categories. Many patients have asymptomatic disease, and this is just picked up incidentally. Uh, but some patients do develop intermittent claudication. And you know we define that as a reproducible pain in the limb and calf pain is typical that occurs at a certain walking distance and is alleviated by standing or by resting. Um, this is really important also to differentiate from other causes of leg pain, such as venostasis, arthritis, spinal stenosis, other very common um, conditions. In general, intermittent claudication is not a limb-threatening problem, and it's really a lifestyle issue. There's a um, a lot of patients are worried about losing their leg and think that because they have a blockage in their leg, it, it has to be fixed. Otherwise, they're going to lose their leg. And, and perhaps they've heard that somewhere. But for the most part, that's not correct. The natural history studies will show you that the risk of major amputation in, in intermittent claudication is actually quite low over time. And, and over 80, you know, 85% of patients or so stay very stable in their claudication symptoms. So then we kind of think about, okay, uh, if it's not limb threatening, what are the goals? And for most patients, the goals will be to walk better and get around better. And that may involve a supervised exercise program, uh, smoking cessation, and uh, medical management with antiplatelet, uh, statin, uh, Solosazole is a medication we sometimes use as well for intermittent claudication. Those are great points. And so uh, we talked a little about uh, duplex for carotid disease. Um, talk a little about ankle brachial index uh, now uh, for ABI for screening or evaluation of the patient who you potentially think you might want to operate on. Ankle brachial index or ABI is certainly our favorite screening test for lower extremity vascular disease. And the reason is that it really is a simple, uh, cost-effective uh, way of giving you an overall assessment of the amount of perfusion to that limb. And so in, in layman's terms, I, I tell patients, you know, your this means that your blood flow circulation is, you know, 80 cents on the dollar or 50 cents on the dollar. And, and that makes sense to people. Um, so the way that it works is that these uh, little blood pressure cuffs are placed on the uh, arms and legs and the blood pressures in the legs are compared to the uh, arms. And in general, they're supposed to be equal or a little bit higher. Um, and there are various categories uh, as you progress with a uh, vascular disease, you know, so claudication range might be in the, you know, 0.5 or so to 0.7 plus range, whereas more critical limb threatening ischemia tends to be less than 0.5 or so, meaning, you know, 50% 50, uh, 50 of what would be considered normal in, in layman's terms again. So I think the ABI really tells you the overall perfusion. It is not uh, a, a test that tells you exactly, precisely uh, where the uh, blockages are. That's something that you can determine more on, say, a CT angiogram or, or an arteriogram, but you can definitely get a sense of the amount of blood flow. And if you do uh, segmental pressures or pressures all the way up to the thigh, for example, you can actually help isolate the level of disease. So there's a group of patients now that we uh, 
we, we talk about having chronic limb threatening ischemia, CLTI is the uh, uh, point that we use. And I was wondering if you could talk about that group. Uh, what's the risk for those patients, uh, certainly for amputation, if we're not going to do a surgical procedure? And when do we operate on those patients? Right. So this is a very important um, area uh, because patients with chronic limb-threatening ischemia will typically progress to major limb amputation without revascularization. Um, there are really three primary symptoms of CLTI. One would be rest pain, which specifically is defined as perfusion that's so poor that the patient has a constant pain in the foot. And this is usually because the perfusion to that part of the foot is, is just so, so limited. So it's really the, the furthest thing away from the, the perfusion. And uh, someone may tell you that they try to achieve some improvement in their pain by hanging their leg off the edge of the bed and just the dependency of, of gravity can augment the flow a little bit and help with some of their pain. So rest pain is very specific and uh, you know, is not pain in your calf or a Charlie horse or something like that. that that's really not, not related. And then there are patients with ischemic ulcerations of the foot or, or wounds that are not healing due to poor perfusion. And then really the, the most severe category would be a gangrene or where the, the tissue begin, begins to oh, or becomes necrotic as a result of such poor blood flow. So another group that I know you see because you're called to the emergency room to see a patient with a acute limb ischemia, maybe embolic or some other uh, form of ischemic disease. How do we evaluate that patient and uh, what should we be doing for management for that patient? Yes, so um, one of our vascular emergency um, problems is acute limb ischemia. And um, this can sometimes be a little bit difficult to differentiate from chronic limb-threatening ischemia. It really all comes down to the history. So what is the timing of the patient's pain? Uh, and if the patient is cognizant or a family member is able to explain this to you, that is really one of the most important things to know. How long have, has the pain in that limb and that foot been present? Okay. Uh, and then you're looking for these five or six Ps. So this is acute limb ischemia uh, refers to uh, loss of Doppler signal. So, so pulselessness, uh, paresthesias or, or numbness in the foot, uh, polar or, or, and pallor as a result of a poor perfusion. And then finally uh, can progress to um, motor, motor dysfunction. Uh, or paralysis, and, and that's one of the other P's that we uh, talk about in, in medical school and beyond. And uh, the pathophysiology of acute limb ischemia is a bit different than CLTI. Uh, for acute limb ischemia, this may occur as a result of an embolism, uh, such as from a cardioembolic source. That's a, a common uh, cause, although that that may go down now with uh, the use of uh, the um, DOAC uh, anticoagulation uh, drugs, but nonetheless, we still see a fair amount of embolic disease. Also, uh, someone who has a chronic stenosis of a blood vessel, that can progress to sudden thrombosis of the blood vessel, which can basically you know, insult to injury. So a patient may have some uh, disease already, but once the blood vessel completely thromboses, then it becomes suddenly much worse. 
like many uh, uh, areas of medicine, there are classifications of disease. I wonder if you could uh, just talk briefly about the Rutherford classification for acute limb ischemia. Sure. So uh, the Rutherford classification uh, is really a, a classic uh, way that we uh, still utilize to uh, categorize acute limb ischemia. And uh, a category one is an unthreatened uh, limb. So this uh, patient will still have a, a Doppler signals and uh, no sensory loss and is able to move the toes uh, well. Uh, whereas category 2A uh, and then moving into 2B are uh, starting to develop, you know, decrease it or decrease or absent uh, Doppler signals and are starting to develop uh, numbness in the foot. Um, and then, you know, when you get to category three, I mean, that that is a foot that has no Doppler signals, has no motor function, probably has some modeling of the skin where it's really, you know, uh, really not going to help to revascularize uh, that patient. So I think these are these are a nice simple um, classification scheme that we can use to kind of talk to each other uh, over the phone, and uh, really helps to communicate um, at a consistent level. You know how serious is this limb? Uh, how, how serious is this limb threat? And that also determines how quickly we need to get that patient to the operating room. A category one patient can probably be placed on a heparin drip and and uh, observed and. Uh, Treated, treated probably that hospital stay, but nonetheless not urgently, whereas a category 2B uh, probably needs to go to the operating room or the uh, endovascular suite uh, that evening. So Britt, in the patient with claudication or let's say rest pain, uh, we're thinking about doing some type of revascularization. What type of imaging studies do you recommend before operative intervention? Mm -hmm. So I think there is a little variability, I think, between whether it's CLTI or whether it's acute limb ischemia. When someone comes in with acute limb ischemia, we often do a full cross-sectional uh, CTA from the aorta all the way down to the, to the toes. And, and we're really looking for uh, thrombus in the arteries and, and where the level of occlusion may be. Uh, sometimes patients have had a prior revascularization procedure. So it's a really a quick an effective way of getting a roadmap. You know you're gonna to have to go in there and, and do something. It's just a matter of really planning that out. Um, so you may not be doing a, an ABI, for example, for acute limb ischemia. Whereas for chronic limb ischemia, um, these are patients where you could, you could do ABIs. You can also do arterial duplex studies. You have the option of doing a CT or MRA as an outpatient as part of the uh, as part of the preoperative planning, um, it's certainly also reasonable to go straight to doing an invasive arteriogram if you're planning to do an intervention and you have an idea of where the level of occlusion is. Let's say your ABI uh, indicates that the patient may have some um, disease in the superficial femoral artery. Uh, okay, then you can you know do an angiogram and and uh, go ahead and treat at that same setting and kind of skip some of the intervening. Uh, studies. So finally, um, just like we talked about uh, in a prior session on uh, aneurysmal disease, we have the opportunity of uh, operating on these patients in an open technique or using some type of endovascular approach. Uh, what are your recommendations and what are the guidelines that we should use for choosing one or the other of those approaches? 
Yeah, so that's that's a a great question, and it's it's very complex because the endovascular toolkit has completely exploded, uh, and there there are so many different uh, techniques and and advanced technology now, and uh, so there are a lot of ways to treat patients endovascularly. I think patients as well, you know, would certainly prefer a a puncture in the groin over a uh, long incision all the way down the leg. Uh, on the other hand. Um, they don't want to have a puncture in the groin every every six months or so uh, if there's uh, issues with uh, restenosis. So it's difficult to compare endovascular and open, you know, side by side in a in a randomized trial, for example. Uh, that's really uh, difficult to do. But what we know is that you know with less severe lesions, so shorter segment stenoses. Um, particularly in more proximal vessels, um, such as the uh, iliac arteries and the uh, short segment SFA occlusions and things like that, do pretty well with endovascular uh, procedures such as balloon angioplasty or stenting. But longer segment occlusions, for example, the entire SFA is occluded or, or extensive tibial disease. I mean, those patients uh, still uh, benefit from uh, bypass uh, surgery and, and may have a a good result from a, from a distal bypass uh, operation. So uh, distal bypass and, and leg bypass is, is still alive and well. Um, and in fact, I mean, I think we do see sometimes um, patients who have had endovascular procedures and, and finally have kind of reached the end of their um, endovascular um, procedure time because, you know, they're just running out of running out of options in that regard. And then the patient, uh, you know, May still have a candidate. Uh, may still be a candidate for a uh, bypass procedure. Well, I'm assuming from my own surgical training, the saphenous vein is still the best conduit. Is that correct? Oh, indeed. Uh, the a good saphenous vein, you know, three millimeters or so plus, you know, is is uh, still the conduit of choice. If you don't have ipsilateral saphenous vein, you would look at the contralateral saphenous vein. Um, next, I tend to look at the, the short saphenous veins and the arm veins, and and uh, and I think uh, I'm not adverse to uh, sewing a couple of pieces to vein, a vein together, which is uh, often better for like a tibial bypass if these are good quality veins as opposed to a, a prosthetic, which has more uh, limited patency, especially for more distal uh, targets. Well, Britt, these are great points. Uh, our discussion today has been Dr. Britt Tonneson, Associate Professor of Surgery at the Yale University School of Medicine. She's an Associate Editor of Selected Readings in General Surgery, and Britt has just been an absolute pleasure to have you with us today on Surgical Readings. Well, well thank you very much. And I also want to thank uh, Dr. Lou Flint for his uh, leadership in, in uh, these Selected uh, Surgical Readings. It's a uh, been a pleasure to work with work with him and, and pleasure to meet you today, Rick. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag SurgicalReadings. You can subscribe to Selected Readings in General Surgery at facs.org srgs. Options are available for individuals, institutions, and residents. I'm Dr. Rick Green. 
Until next time, thank you for listening and learning.